We've heard a lot this afternoon to remind us, beginning with Wenda this morning, about how costly it is to rear human children and how much help mothers need. Don't forget that. But this means that children are born in a world where they are depending on a wider cast of characters than I think evolutionary anthropologists had originally assumed. And that's what you've been hearing about a lot today. And whether that cast of characters, whether the protagonists are fathers or others or grandmothers or whatever, the human infant confronts all the same challenges that other apes do But both the mother and her infant are going to have to factor in this extra support from pre-reproductive helpers, from male helpers, whether it's the father or whether it's this band of bros out there showing off, grandmothers. They have to factor in these extra concerns. They are not able to count on the four to eight years of single-minded maternal dedication that an infant chimpanzee or orangutan might. These infants were in competition with the mother's older children when they're born. And those of you who have siblings know what that feels like. (laughs) They're also in competition with their mother's alternative reproductive possibilities, a baby that might be born at a better time. The mother's mate has just left, but she might get a new man and the next baby born then. And this leads to a very special challenge of humans and only a very few other primates of mothers discriminating between offspring, possibly retrenching, and as has happened, I'm afraid, all too frequently in human history and prehistory, bailing out altogether. Contingent maternal commitment has increased selection pressures on babies to look good right at birth. When mothers are making the initial decision before, for example, picking that baby up where it can latch onto the nipples and do all those that wonderful magic with oxytocin. Um, so you heard Winda say that babies are born uh, fatter, bigger than other apes. They're born five times fatter. And... It's true, of course, that this is helpful. If there's a separation from the mother, it helps to keep them warm. But you know, other apes face that same challenge. And yes, it's true that you need to fuel that very rapidly developing brain. But I suspect that's not the only reason human babies are born so fat. They're also producing an advertisement for themselves. They're saying, hey, mom, I'm full-term, robust. I'm a good bet for survival keep me. And being born full term would have been even more critical among our Pleistocene ancestors with very high infant mortality. There's a bottleneck there for hominin children that was very hard to get through. And even though it's a lot easier today when 99% of the babies born in our society survive, we see 
curious vestiges of this ancient preoccupation when we send out birth announcements with gratuitous information. Nine pounds, three ounces. Why do we care? Looking cute stimulates reward systems in human brains. Um, Your orbital frontal cortex just fires off all sorts of good responses when you see a cute baby. But let's analyze what cute baby means. If you alter faces digitally from less to more cute and analyze it, what cute baby means is plump, alert, healthy, full term. Alloparental brains respond pretty much the same way. Uh, the initial results from studies like this was greeted by the media as, oh, we found the basis for maternal instincts. But half the people in that study were males. The majority, all the women in this study were nulliparous. They'd never had a baby. Alloparents and parents have these same effects. So fathers clearly have this potential to respond to babies. And you have this species where mothers need help so very much. In that case, how is it that paternal care varies so much? I mean, you have some men who are totally dedicated to their children, the Mrs. Doubtfires out there. And you have other men, men certain of paternity, who behave as if they didn't even know they had children. How can this be? I call this the paradox of facultative fathering. And you have this species where men have this extraordinary potential for nurture, albeit not always expressed. Uh, We know, for example, men in intimate contact with children, with babies, their prolactin level goes up. Another one of those female hormones that we didn't study so much in men because, you know, who would have thought? Um, You have oxytocin level going up. You have testosterone going down. All of this in response to infants, and the relevant factors seem to be the signals of need from the infant, very important, the man's own, own childcare experience. Did he have experiences babysitting as a boy? Uh, the man's relationship with the mother, probability of genetic paternity. But the most important of all is this prolonged intimate contact with infant. And so you have this very facultative capacity for caring that we're only in really in the last decade starting to learn more about. And we're beginning to get information very relevant to this um, from hunter-gatherer people like the, the Aka. This is, uh, these are data from Courtney Meehan, who's worked with Barry among the Aka. And what she learned was that men provide more or less direct care depending on a number of factors, but including, importantly, who else is there available and willing to help. And she was able to do this by looking at um, couples when they were living in a matrilocal setting, surrounded by the mother's matrilineal kin, and and then she looked at couples living 
in a petrolocal setting where the mother's kin were no longer available. Now, the amount of care the, the baby got, direct physical holding, didn't change. And the amount of time the mother held her baby didn't change that much. But what changed was in the matrilocal setting, the bulk of allomaternal care was being done by the mother's matrilineal kin. In the patrilocal setting, all of a sudden, dads were chipping in enormously. They were needed, they were, they were already bonded to their babies, and they responded. Well, recognizing humankind's deep legacy of cooperative breeding, which just means any species with alloparental in addition to parental care and provisioning of young, helps us resolve this curious paradox of the facultative father. In addition to flexible family compositions, which is very important in hunter-gatherer lives, uh, and very uh, flexible residence patterns where, and porous social boundaries where people can move between groups, you also have to have something else, though, going on. You need youngsters able to identify who's going to help engage and appeal to potential caretakers in a way that other apes didn't have to do. Um, now, they are not among apes, but among some of the other primates and many of the monkey species, for example, uh, uh, there's a great deal of infant sharing, not infant provisioning necessarily, but shared care of infants that goes on. But remember, these infant sharing primates have had millions of years to evolve uh, within this system. And so you have had infants evolve attributes that make them highly attractive, not just to their mothers, that's a, actually a foregone conclusion among monkeys, but attractive to others as well. So you have these bright golden babies. You have these snow white babies born to black and white parents. Humans, of course, we're the new kids on the block in terms of cooperative breeding. We've had a mere two, maybe three million years of doing this. We don't have flamboyant natal coats to attract our uh, alloparental caretakers, but mothers take care of this. They use culture and custom to decorate their babies, and we do it too. That's what baby stores are about, to get you to come in. And... So if the key difference cognitively between humans and other apes has to do with the kind of shared intentionality and triadic interactions, something that Kim Bard talked about earlier today, if this is really a key difference, and I think it is, we still need to explain its initial emergence, the initial development of these capacities. And my own favored way of explaining it is to take a highly intelligent bipedal ape with the cognitive and manipulative potentials and rudimentary theory of mind that we find in all the great apes, just your run-of-the-mill last common ancestor, and then rear that ape in a very novel social context where maternal care is contingent and the immature develops having to depend on, elicit help from, ingratiate him or herself with a range of caretakers and providers. And as Kim 
Bart described, and I think hopefully convinced you of earlier today, developmental context makes a big difference in how a little ape turns out at the end of development. This doesn't say that, and we know for a fact it doesn't, that if you rear a chimp in a human family, it is like a human. No. But we know that it is phenotypically different. And reasons to believe that accumulating evidence suggests that among our hominin ancestors, children's survival is going to depend on alloparental input. Uh, the uh, care from others, well, allo-maternal care anyway, care from individuals other than the mother and provisioning. So at the end of this very novel developmental period, you then have Darwinian social selection that's going to favor any little immature in which the potentials for looking out to others and paying attention to others that Kim Bard finds in her apes, those potentials are more developed. Well, you know, you can have a wonderful trait, but if it's not expressed in the phenotype, it's invisible to natural selection. By expressing these traits, Darwinian social selection has a chance to favor those little immatures that just are just a little bit better at mind reading, a little bit better at ingratiating themselves with others. Well, that's an interesting model. But did contingent nurture affect phenotypic development the way this model assumes? Well, it's the usual story. We can't go back in time. We can't see how hominin children responded to caretakers two million years ago, but we still have studies of living apes, and we have studies, a great deal of study, in fact, of their modern human descendants. So I'm going to ask, does being reared by allo mothers, in addition to mothers, I want to be clear, Mel and I don't differ on how important mothers are, how central. We, do, we might differ on the capacity of children to have multiple attachment figures, but we don't differ on the importance of mothers. Does being reared by allo mothers, in addition to mothers, affect ape phenotypes the way the model assumes? rendering youngsters more other-regarding. Well, we can look at chimpanzees as proxies for the last common ancestor, exclusively reared by its mother or reared by mothers plus others, albeit in many of these cases we're talking about human ally mothers. And as Kim pointed out, the ones reared with ally mothers in addition to mothers are better at reading certain social cues, uh, they, they, they read points better than do chimpanzees reared exclusively by their mothers. Um, we know from studies in Kyoto, chimpanzees accustomed to trusted human caretakers test better when they're asked to provide another chimpanzee the tool that they need to get at a particular treat. They can peek through, see what this guy needs, and hand them exactly that one. Behavioral evidence from modern human descendants. Babies off their mothers spend more time looking at faces, monitoring eye gaze. They pay more attention to expressions than do the babies in continuous physical contact with their mothers. Greater reliance on allo mothers also may help explain 
why human infants are more interested in triadic interactions, holding something else out at about nine months of age to see what someone else thinks about it. Um, Tomonaga and others find that little chimps kind of lose interest in doing that, whereas humans are getting better and better. Humans also, like chimpanzees, can recognize photographs of their mother's face right from birth, or they learn shortly after. But after a while, chimpanzees lose this capacity, and infant humans just get better and better at that. Decades of research in the social sciences document enhanced mentalizing and perspective-taking in children reared with multiple attachment figures. I'm just going to mention a few of the highlights. Uh, At-risk mothers with a maternal grandmother in the household with them uh, have enhanced cognitive abilities. Uh, Their children are attached better or more securely, and the children exhibit enhanced cognitive capacities by age four. Uh, The presence of older siblings is correlated with a more sophisticated theory of mind by age three and improved social skills at older ages. Lots of studies in that vein. Um, Finally, the involvement of multiple caretakers is correlated with an enhanced capacity to integrate multiple perspectives. From as early as three to four months, Uh, Babies are also able to tell who's going to help, who's going to hurt. Famous studies that I Callie Hamlin that I'm going to have to skip through. Uh, Why do I believe that humans are better at doing this earlier than chimpanzees are? I have no right to believe that in the sense that we have not looked yet at these capacities, how early they emerge in humans, the kind of thing Callie Hamlin was studying. But the reason I suspect that humans are going to be better at it earlier is work coming out of the Primate Research Institute in Kyoto, uh, uh, Tetsuro Matsuzawa's group, uh, Sakai and her colleagues, comparing brain development and finding that there's a faster trajectory of growth in the white matter of the human prefrontal cortex. That's the part of the brain where we're processing these kind of discriminations between other individuals. Things like who's going to be helpful and who's not, and what they're going to like and not. The timing of this faster development in the human prefrontal cortex starts at around six months, coinciding with emergence of attention-getting vocalizations. And I think many people would argue, well, sure, Sarah, it's just language. But I'm not so sure. Uh, Because, of course, I see babbling as just another way to get out of maternal attention, and language comes much later. Um, It also emerges at about the same time as milk teeth and the kind of kiss feeding that was very important among hominin foragers. Um, So human infants lag behind other apes in physical development. Uh, though I would argue that plump human babies are cuter. Um, They lag behind other apes in physical development, yet they prove remarkably precocial in monitoring others and assessing their intentions. So I want to just conclude with a slight caveat to the title on your program, the helpless human infant turns out to be only selectively altricial and 
to remind you that cooperative child rearing has meant, quite literally, changing our minds. Thank you.